John chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 30. If you're not familiar with the passage, uh, this is John the baptizer who's speaking here, and among other things that he says, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful, Lord, again for this time that we have together. Lord, I pray that while it's a blessing to be one with another, those ones that we might like and enjoy the company of, Father, I pray, Lord, that always our purpose would be that you would be lifted up, Father, that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted primarily, first and foremost, Lord. Let your glory always be our purpose and our focus, especially when we are gathered here together. Help us to set you first, and not just here, Lord, as we leave this place. Be number one in our lives, Father. Be primary. Help us to recognize how important it is that you increase and we decrease. For our blessing and for your glory, I pray this this morning and ask for your hand and direction as we consider your word. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen. Uh, If you are not familiar with John the Baptizer, get familiar with him because he's a good brother. I enjoy reading about him and I enjoy recognizing the personalities of these different individuals in Scripture and understanding how those personalities can be brought out as they, well, lived their lives and presented themselves. And when I read about John the Baptizer, I always think, what you see is what you get. Um, if you don't know that saying and that, that consideration, that, uh, well, that figure of speech, what you see is what you get is something that typically I appreciate in somebody, particularly if who they are isn't someone who's, who's a jerk. You know? uh, that, that's not kind of me to say that right out of the gates, for goodness sake. Someone who's not hateful, someone who's not unkind, someone who's not... Um, if someone is a, a good person... I appreciate what you see is what you get. What I mean is that they are who they are no matter where they are, no matter what context they're in, no matter who they're before, no matter what the situation, what you see is what you get. So I guess even if they would be classified as a quote-unquote a jerk, if uh, I want to use my mean word there, uh, at least you know who they are and you know what they are. John the baptizer was not a jerk. He was merely someone who put the Lord first and foremost and made it plain no matter who he was with. You see other people uh, who are what they are. What you see is what you get in Scripture. I won't turn there, but when Nathaniel, the, the disciple, was introduced to Jesus, well, when Philip went and called him and said, listen, man, I've, you need to come and see. I found the one that, that the prophets foretold. And he's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, I'm not going to put that into any you know, context that we might better understand, lest I offend somebody. Or does anything good come out of New Jersey? I don't think we have any Jersey folks here. But you know, a lot of people kind of you know, uh, dump on Jersey up in the northeastern area. Does anything good ha- come out of Jersey? That's what Nathaniel was saying. He was just speaking what was on his mind. And when he came before Jesus, Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He is who he is, uh, no matter what, in whom there is no guile. I appreciate those ones who are who they are. What you see is what you get. Uh, you don't 
need to worry about them leaving you and being somebody different. And John the baptizer was, well, he's the epitome of that in my mind. What you see is what you get. That camel skin wearing, locust and honey eating, you know, fiery preacher speaking exactly what the Lord had for him, no matter who he was speaking to, whether he was exalting the Lord Jesus or he was well, crying out and decrying those ones who were less than ideal spiritually. John was one who called it out, and he was, well, he is who he is. Uh, he was secure in who he was. Whenever I speak about John, this, this, is, this isn't a lesson about John the Baptist. It's about our increasing the Lord and decreasing ourselves in the process. And I guess I could even get ahead of myself and say it's our increasing ourselves by decreasing ourselves, but I don't want to confuse anyone just yet. We'll get there. But I like to speak and just present a little bit of who John was. This one who was who he was, who what you see is what you get. Let's, let's look and see that John understood who he was. I point this out frequently because it's important. Uh, John made some real... We can turn to John chapter 1, flip back a couple of pages. John the baptizer, well... He made some concessions in his own natural life. He made some sacrifices in his own natural life that he might honor the Lord. And in my mind, quite clearly, that he might lay up some things in his spiritual life, right? John chapter 1, he presents that he knew who he was and he accepted and embraced who he was, who the Lord had for him to be. John chapter 1, you know, I'll go ahead and just read... Well, let's start at verse 19, even though I have verse 22 there. Some people approached him, and I think it's good to hear what he says. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? (laughs) He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Let's just get this right out of the way. People come up with some interesting ideas when the new up-and-coming preacher, the new up-and-coming evangelist, the new up-and-coming whatever the situation, whatever the, the person might be, this one is, well, they tag them with things and they attach them with, well, with stigma and with titles and with, well, without even really realizing what they're doing or, or what they're saying. Perhaps they put a lot more on people than, than perhaps is due them. And this might have been the case with John, but he made plain, I'm not the Christ. Don't look at me this way. Don't, don't expect anything. I have a certain amount of followers here. I have a certain amount of disciples here and I am speaking something that is new, but I am not him. So he goes on. So they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to, said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He said, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. This is who I am. What he could have said was, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? You're going to ask me who I am? I'm the one that the prophet foretold. I'm the one who was sent before the Messiah. I'm not him, no, I'm not not the Christ, but I'm the one appointed by God, foretold back in in generations past. I mean, I am mentioned here, not by name, but I'm presented by this by this prophet, Isaiah, that you're familiar with, uh, to, to herald the arrival of the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Deliverer. That's who I am. He could have said that. We know that he didn't. He didn't put himself on a pedestal. 
He could have leaned in even to the nearness he had in in a familial relationship to Jesus, the nearness that he had in an actual relationship as being the herald of the Son of God. He He could have put that all out there and presented himself and pointed to himself. Are you kidding me? I'll tell you who I am. But you see quite clearly the the negative. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm just the voice. And I appreciate that about John. Uh, And then he goes on to say, just so that you know, he must increase, but I must decrease. He being Jesus. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. I appreciate John's willingness to put himself back to have an inversely proportional relationship. As I lift up Jesus, I am at the same time going to push myself, my own status down. It is going to be a continually pushing apart. Not just a, I'll stand here and push Jesus forward and make sure that He's this way. And, and you know, I'll walk behind Him and I'll just stay close. No, it is a, He's up and I'm going to make sure <laughs> there's a farther and farther space. You watch these kids sometimes, you know, when you're out out with them. When they don't want to have an adult with them, they'll look at you and make sure that you're staying away and then they're off doing their own thing. They don't want you coming up close. I do this myself. I do this by myself, they'll say. They don't want you close. They don't want you on top of them. You'll try to stay with them. No! I want distance. They want you to walk that way while they walk this way. That's what John was doing. He says, he must increase, he must go up while I must go down. This is one of those verses, and I hate to bring this sort of thing out, but it's one of those verses that, well, I had a buddy back in Colorado. He was a partner of mine for a while, and I enjoyed that time, probably the greatest year of my professional life in the old career, uh, because he was a believer, and we lifted one another up and encouraged one another day after day when we worked on the on the ambulance together. But uh, he used to have a term that he'd say, you know what drives me crazy is, not the people who practice Christianity, but the people who practice churchianity. <laughs> That's what he called it, churchianity. And it was that not quite Christian behavior of acting one way at church, uh, putting on a very good churchy presentation, and being someone different once they left. Uh, you know, you come to church and you say all the right things, you do all the right things, you go through the motions, so to speak. We know people like that. We've been guilty of it ourselves, perhaps. And then, you know, leaving here and and getting back to real life, so to speak. Uh, It's knowing how one should be and then dismissing that uh, when the chips fall. You know, when when they are what they are and and you actually get out into real life. And John 3.30 is one of those things that it's quoted a lot more often than it's actually applied. We want to have this. We want to own this. We want to... As the Franklins uh, sang just a moment ago, we want to receive the Lord's strength. We want to receive His peace. We want to receive Himself because He's giving and He's giving and He's giving. And yet when the time comes often, when, when He's trying to give us that strength and peace and we need it above all, oftentimes our hands are very close to our bodies, so to speak. And we're not receiving that from Him to go ahead and move forward. We want to take the strength and the peace to <laughs> hunker down and stay where we are, perhaps. Um, not necessarily... Embrace the situation or the circumstance. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's a good thought, but oftentimes it's far more quoted than it is applied. Why is that? Because it's not easy, right? It's not easy always to increase the Lord and to decrease ourselves. Uh, It can be difficult when we 
look to carry this out. You know, I have a lot of projects that I have begun <laughs> and looked at it and said, that's going to take me half an hour. It takes me half an hour times ten. You know, it takes me about five hours to do something. This, I can do this. This is no problem. It's a piece of cake. But it ends up being more difficult than I expected it to. Increasing the Lord and decreasing ourselves is difficult for this flesh. And while we might proclaim this, while we might present it in a measure of churchianity, to actually live it and bear it out is difficult. Uh, John had no problems. I won't say that it wasn't difficult for him, but he made plain that he actually did. How do we know? Did he decrease himself for the sake of increasing Christ? If we look back there in John chapter 1, verse 26, understand what that word decrease means. When it talks about I must decrease, what does that mean uh, specifically? In the Greek, it means to be made less or to make less. To be made inferior or to make inferior. It can speak about dignity. It can speak about place. It can speak about uh, status. It can speak about ambition. It can speak about physical capability and presentation. It can speak about a number of different things. But in this context, it means to decrease in authority. It means to decrease in popularity, perhaps. It means to decrease or be made inferior compared to, well, Christ. He must increase. I need to make myself less. I need to subject myself. And so we saw that, naturally speaking. He was successful. He, like I said a moment ago, he wore camel skins. That wasn't normal for everybody there. He ate locusts and honey. That wasn't normal for everybody there. He didn't chase natural admiration. That's not typical for people, whether it's in this culture or that culture. He was different. Uh, he, he decreased himself before the presence of everybody. He wasn't looking for those natural comforts. And he did not put on airs while he did it. He didn't allow himself to be vaunted up. John chapter 1, verse 26, he called things as they were. John answered them uh, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. This is what I do. But let's stop and put me aside for a second. There stands someone among you that you're not identifying. You're not understanding. You're not recognizing. And ultimately, that's an indictment on those people, isn't it? There is one standing before you. You're, you're coming to me and talking to me. That's the one that you need to be considering right now. The one who is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Uh, many of those would get to know Jesus, certainly. But many of them never did. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. This is him just from the outset, decreasing himself in the eyes of those that most people would have wanted to be increased before. Look at me how spiritual I am. Look at me what I'm accomplishing. Look at me for what I'm doing. He didn't do it. He said, don't look at me. There's one among you whom you do not know that you need to get to know. He meant what he said, and he lived it. And so, we see him bearing that out. When his own disciples came, not just these Pharisees and other Jews that would come and ask, well, he had his disciples would come. They're asking about Jesus. Let's look back in John chapter 3 and verse 26. These ones who were, well, that he had authority over, you could say, his disciples, his followers, these ones who knew his doctrine, knew his 
his message, knew his life, identified him for who he was. Uh, They came asking. In John chapter 3 and verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, I'm sorry you can't read that very well, uh, to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. They're talking about Jesus here. Uh, They're saying, listen, the one who was with you over there, the one who you've been pointing out, the one who you've been identifying, the one to whom you have testified. And what did John said about Jesus? This is the one. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is the one who I'm not worthy to latch you to shoes. So on and so forth. He was identifying Jesus for who he was. And they're saying, look, the one who you were with, the one who you've testified about, look, he's baptizing. And everyone's going to him. Now, I don't want to just always assume that people are getting it wrong. And these ones might have been saying, look, celebrate. (laughs) It's happening. The Christ is here. The one that you've been testifying. Look, everyone's going to him. Maybe that's what they were saying. But just based on the way that John responds to him here, I I don't think that that's the case. It sounds to me more like that they're saying, Rabbi, this one is baptizing. And everyone's going to him. And, well, you're the baptizer, for goodness sake. You're, you're John the baptizer. How, how can this be, perhaps? Uh, and we see him respond to them in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness. This is why I believe that they were misguided in the moment, because he's bringing, bringing them back. You know what I've said. You know what my purpose has been, John said. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Of course they're going to him. Of course they should go to him. Once again, decreasing himself while he's increasing the Lord. John determined, he made plain that he was going to accept his place. Embrace the place that the Lord gave for him to take. What was it? I don't have it in my notes here, but I believe it's back in John chapter 1. When when. Well, let me see if I can find it there. It's when it says that John was that one. He wasn't the one, but he was the one that was going to tell of the one that came in. Um, there it is in verse, in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, it says there in verse 8. But he was sent to bear witness of that light. You know, John recognized... John recognized, I am not the man. I am not the Son of God. I am not the Christ. People might project things upon me. People might push things towards me. Myself and my own mind and my natural, my natural mind and my flesh might desire certain things for myself. But I know who I am. And I'm not that one and I will not allow, I will not stand for ones to believe that that is the case. You know what I have borne witness to. You've heard me say, I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. I appreciate that. He took that stand, that stand of humility. Perhaps you've, you've seen people take credit for work that isn't theirs in your own job. I've seen it, not in this job, but in the old one, where you'd see, you know, you work hard to accomplish this, this, or this, and someone else stepped forward, and, and some said, well, hey, thanks for doing this, or I, I recognize that you did this to somebody else, and you wait for them to say, actually... And yet they don't. You know, they might not say, yes, I did it, but they don't 
correct that person necessarily. Man, this guy John the Baptizer, he is amazing. Have you seen what he's done? Why could this be the one? And he could have sat there and just been like coy and just let it happen. I didn't say it wasn't me. But you didn't say. You didn't correct them. You didn't correct them that, that, well, that you weren't the one. Eh, John didn't let that happen. John embraced who he was, and he embraced that he was not the Christ, and he increased him and pointed to him at every opportunity. He wasn't interested in churchianity, as my friend would have said. He knew what God wanted. He proclaimed it. He lived it. He believed it. He showed it. And that's hard for a lot of people to do. To say the right thing and also to actually do the right thing. Putting the Lord out there, number one, literally ahead of themselves, literally ahead of their own natural self-interest, literally ahead of their own status, whatever the situation might be. It's difficult at times when the rubber meets the road, when we leave places such as this, when we leave and we're not under the eye and the accountability of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we step out there. Oftentimes it's difficult to... Well, to put the Lord ahead of ourselves, lift him up and decrease ourselves. I'm going to leave John for the moment uh, after that introduction of that brother and, and consider this thought of, well, that the Lord must increase while we must decrease. And I, as I've been thinking about this and considering this one, as I oftentimes do, I look at different ones throughout Scripture who have, well, could stand to have presented that idea presented that concept in their own lives or, or failed at it. And for some reason, that priest back in Shiloh, back in 1 Samuel, and we can turn over there, we'll spend a little time in 1 Samuel. His name was Eli, and he was the, the priest there in Shiloh where the tabernacle was and where the center of worship was before Jerusalem came, uh, came to be that place. He presents the opposite to an extent, the opposite of increasing the Lord and decreasing oneself. Not necessarily promoting himself, not necessarily putting himself out there as being something, I don't want to project too much upon him, but he didn't take the responsibility that he had before the Lord to address the things that he needed to before the Lord, that it was his responsibility to. And therefore, lift the Lord up first and put his own desires, his own Comfort aside, uh, we see an example at, uh, in this man, Eli. Now, he was the priest. He was at the top of the pecking order, you might say. He was in a place of authority and in a place of responsibility, not unlike what John the baptizer had with his disciples, except that, well, Eli was recognized by everybody. Everyone who, who, who associated themselves with the law of Moses and associated themselves with God Jehovah, they would have looked to him and said, this man is the one appointed. Whether or not they you know, were practicing or committed to that way entirely, John the baptizer would have had his disciples, but other ones would have said, who's this crazy guy? Uh, Eli was the, the high priest. He was the one who was, he was the man. He was at the top and he was identified and accepted by the nation, you might say. And yet this man who was in such a place, he was in error. Uh, he, he had some issues. Uh, what was hindering him? Well, he had a family problem. You all have family problems? <laughs> yeah, we do from time to time. The sons of Eli were corrupt, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12. And it's very plain there, they did not know the Lord. These ones who were sons of the priest were themselves given priestly appointments. 
they they operated in a in a priestly capacity and they acted as anything but priests. Man, you talk about uh, churchianity. <laughs> These ones here didn't even present themselves in a godly manner when they were before the people of God. They didn't even present themselves with a fake testimony in front of in front of everybody. Uh, the chapter goes on to demonstrate and describe some of the things that these guys were doing, and it wasn't good. They were abusing and well misusing the sacrifices of. I'm going to turn over there in my in my own Bible. We might look at a couple of different things. They were misusing the sacrifices that the people brought, that they were responsible for presenting before the Lord on their behalf. They were abusing those things, not taking the portion correctly, not presenting it before the Lord as He called for them to. Um, They were threatening the people when they would question them about it. Uh, Are you sure that this should be this way? You know, I've I've had from time to time people... I'm no high priest, but, you know, I'm kind of the guy who's around this building more often than anybody. And sometimes something will be out of place or out of position. And someone will say, "Mm, did you want this to be so? Or do you suppose that this could be, you know, people will approach and and say, you know, express their opinions and, and thoughts on what's perhaps not being done quite right in this context or that. These folks weren't out of line. They brought their sacrifice, and these guys were kind of just attacking it the way that they wanted to, taking portions that weren't theirs, not burning the parts that the law of Moses makes plain was supposed to be presented. And they're like, you need to do this a certain, a certain way, don't you? And they'd be like, you know, we're going to take it by force is what they said. And they were behaving lewdly. It says elsewhere in this chapter, not just lewdly, they were being carnal. And they were bringing huge reproach. Huge reproach on the tabernacle and the priestly functions that took place there on God's order, on God's word. They were presenting themselves with no, no testimony at all whatsoever. And we understand that that can take place in the church today. Uh, in First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 17. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. <clears throat> These ones... We're foregoing their responsibility, as well as those, those ones given to serve in the house of the Lord. Now, whose responsibility was it? And I don't mean just what their responsibility was, but whose responsibility was it to deal with those ones? Well, I'd say absolutely it was Eli's. He was the man. He was the high priest, we could say. Not only that, he was their father too. He was their dad. Listen, if you have adult, if you have adult children, you understand that once they become an adult, <clears throat> once they step out of your house for good, well, you have to kind of find that happy medium, right? Where you're not just dadding them all the time. You're not just parenting them all the time. Sometimes you're like, man, that's easy. I'm not. <laughs> that's his business. Woo! I'm glad. Take. Other times you might look and say, hmm. Yeah, I'd do that different. But I'm not going to insult. I'm not going to belittle. I'm not going to make them feel small or something like that because, you know what, it's not my place to do this. Other times you look at something and say, something has to be said. Something needs to be dealt with here. Some, this is a necessary thing that there will be repercussions if it doesn't get addressed. He was the high priest, he was their father. 
You can look in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 5, I'm not going to go there, but there were specific statements that, were, that demonstrated the responsibility of the parents when they had an unruly, rebellious child. And it could include penalties up and, in, up and including death. Uh, kids, keep that in mind, man. Don't be unruly. <laughs> or we might all just pick up some stones. That's terrible to even talk about. Uh, that was a different time and a different age. Eli needed to have a difficult conversation with his sons. He needed to have not just a difficult conversation with them. He needed to address this. And when I say difficult, I don't mean difficult in dealing in, in, in that having to have it. What I'm trying to say is it's not difficult to recognize it had to be had, that it had to take place. It wasn't difficult to see that this needs to be addressed. What was difficult is well that he had to have it. To recognize that, man, I failed and my sons are failing here. The problem was, as we go on in the stories, we recognize that Eli wasn't willing to have that. Well, more than a conversation, more than just saying, hey guys, keep this together. He was willing to talk, but he wasn't willing to decrease himself for the increase of God. Let me clarify here. I'm kind of throwing out some word salad here. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 23. Eli knew what the problem was. He knew how wrong it was. And he asked, I believe, some token questions of his sons. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. That's solid. That's, that's true. What he's stating is right. He recognized, No, guys, this, this can't be so. You're... you're well, when Nathan approached David after David sinned with, with Bathsheba, he said, you're causing, well, the enemies of God to blaspheme. They're recognizing what you're doing here, and you're supposed to be David, the king of God's people. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David, the one who, who is the champion of faith and, and, and godliness. And now you're causing people to say, if that guy is the champion of Jehovah... Ah, I'll take somebody else. That's, that's the reality of it. And it doesn't take much to see that. Eli recognized what was going on. Evil dealings I'm hearing about from all the people. You make the, uh, the Lord's people transgress. The unfortunate part was that he was going through the motions there. Right? You can have a difficult conversation, but sometimes it ends there. And the conversation doesn't lead to action. And it didn't lead to action for him. Uh, Eli had the conversation and yet it went on. He didn't deal with it. Now, God doesn't shirk the less than glorious tasks. God doesn't shirk his responsibility. He gives us opportunity to do the right thing. And if, they don't, if we don't do the right thing, then he steps in. And we see that in verse 29. <clears throat> uh, Eli didn't deal with it. So then what happened? A man of God went to Eli to speak plainly to him. He says uh, the words of the Lord. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling place and honor your sons more than me to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? God has the difficult conversations with us. It isn't always just a sit down and looking him face to face in the eye and him Stating the things that straight from his mouth, sometimes it's exactly that when he speaks to our hearts with the Spirit and makes clear what he wants. Sometimes he sends a messenger, even today, to speak to us as this man did. 
I mean, he spoke clearly. He told Eli what he was doing. He says, you're honoring your sons more than me. Now, what is that? That's increasing his kids and increasing himself as he's associated with his kids and decreasing the Lord, right? That's not increasing, allowing the Lord to increase and ourselves to decrease. Eli wanted his own comforts. Eli wanted his own pleasure. Eli wanted his own convenience. Why do I believe that? Because he didn't deal with things as he was intended to deal with them. He allowed his family to run him over. Can we do this? Yes, we sure can. We can allow our families to set us back if we don't deal with those things the way that we're intended. He was in a place of responsibility. He was in a place of appointment. And his sons were directly affecting his testimony as the priest there in Shiloh. And it was hindering and it was causing those different ones. Those ones who could witness and recognize that the testimony was failing. It cheapened the word of God. It cheapened that position in the eyes of others. Uh, And yet there Eli continued wearing that ephod. Continued in presenting himself as the priest. Continued as well dealing with people like Hannah. Correcting them and, and, and stating to them what... Well, you'll remember that Hannah was praying and he says... Put away your drink. What are you doing drunk here at this, at this time? You know, she could have said, uh, do you know what your sons are doing? It, really? You're, you're going to come after Really? You're going to come after me? I'm praying, by the way. What's Hophni doing right now? She could, she could have done something along those lines. And while it wouldn't have been necessarily a godly response, naturally speaking, it would have been justified. Yes? The testimony was absent because of Eli's situation. He didn't honor God above all things up to and including his own family and his dealings with them. He didn't honor God at the expense of his own comfort. He didn't lift up God and decrease himself in the issues. The, 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 he didn't decrease himself in the conveniences of just, well, not just putting things aside. Saints, it can be difficult to do the will of God, no question. It can be difficult to decrease ourselves to decrease our comfort, to decrease our respect, to decrease our admiration, to decrease all of the things that that we want, naturally speaking, for the sake of God's being increased in our lives. And yet, it's so simple to consider and so simple a thing to put into application if we're willing to let the Lord do it. Uh, We need to seek God's increase. There's no question. Uh, No question. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'll just give you this. That's just an example of those ones who did, who did put the Lord ahead, who did uh, increase the Lord despite experiencing what we experience in our life for Christ. This is Paul speaking to the Thessalonians there, and they're an example to us, as so many in Scripture are. He says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in what? In much affliction, in much difficulty, in much trouble, in much trial, in much inconvenience, in much discomfort, all of these things. How did they receive the word? How did they receive the direction of the Lord? With joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. So that we do not need to say anything. Saints, I think of those ones who practice churchianity and, and I'll put on the show, so to speak. 
say all the right things in all the right contexts, but when they leave those contexts of, of, well, church and the like, and step aside and real life steps in and falter, I think about these different ones. Uh, these ones in, well, that Paul's talking about here. It says, well, the easiest way to demonstrate this so that your faith toward God has gone out so we don't need to say anything, the easiest way to bear out the testimony, the, the easiest way well, to present the right thing and to present it all the time is to believe it. Not just come to church and say, well, he must increase, I must decrease, I know this. And, and that's true, and that's true, and then walk out and dismiss it. The best thing to do is to believe it. Now, that seems so simple, and it seems it is simple. It's, and I believe that it actually is easy as well. If you believe the Word of God, if you believe that He is your strength and your peace, and if you believe that He wants to give Himself, and you believe that He must increase and I must decrease, that's the best way to bear that out and not fake it anyplace else. Not well, not fake it here, or not fake it elsewhere. It's the new creation in us that's the real. That's the reality. That is the real life. It's to simply believe it, to live it, to apply it, all the time. Receive it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Yes, there's affliction that comes, as Paul told those Thessalonians. Yes, as we receive the word, as we are directed in, in following after Him, it is difficult. There will be the conversations. There will be the struggles that we have to apply ourselves to. However. When we receive that with the joy of the Holy Spirit and the direction, knowing that it's for our benefit, we don't have to fake it. We don't have to fake it here because we actually believe it. And we don't have to put it aside when we walk out here because we actually believe it and we live it and it's presented there. Lots of other examples like John, like Paul, like Rahab, like Joseph, like Mary, all of these different ones who believed what the Lord was doing in them and they bore it out. Countless other ones that we could look at that were blessed and blessed and blessed and continued themselves to bless others. But I need to get through this here. So I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Just to give you the greatest example of one who was willing to decrease themselves for the increase in the glory of God. I think it's probably the easiest question I could ask you this morning. Who is the greatest example of one willing to decrease themselves for the increase and the glory and the praise of the Lord God? And of course, that would be Jesus himself. And that's who we see in the first part of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, guess what that word lower is there? The same one as decrease. We see Jesus, who you could even say, as since it was his determination, his choice, his agreement with his Father. Jesus, who decreased himself. Decreased himself to the point that he suffered death, uh, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, he demoted himself. He decreased himself beneath the level even of those created beings, the angels. For the glory of God, for the increase of God, for the praise of his Father. Now, that being said, was it only for the increase, the praise of his Father, the good and the blessing of his Father that he decreased himself? I think you understand that that's not the case either. Continuing in verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. 
Who benefits from the actual decreasing of Jesus Christ? Who is increased because of his decreasing himself? Well, that's me. That's you. You know, when just here's the punchline. Here's the rest of the story. John says, He must increase, I must decrease. Guess what? Jesus said, I must decrease so that you might increase. I am going to decrease myself for your increase, for your increase, for your capability of being lifted up. By the grace of God, He tasted death for everyone. And if we're willing to decrease ourselves in this life, the potential of enjoying that increase that Jesus bought for us is huge. Uh, James 4.10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Decrease yourself. Diminish yourself. Don't seek just for your own convenience, your own comfort. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Make yourself available to Him. Push yourself down, not cowering before Him, but simply saying, man, my flesh wants this, but I know that you don't want this, so I'm just going to push this aside and wait on you. I'm going to listen to you. Not going to practice this just here when I'm at, at church. Not going to practice it just when I'm with my parents. Not going to practice it just when I'm with my church friends. I, I legit want what you want for me, God. That's where, what we're called to be. It's the justified place. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Guess what He'll do? He'll lift you up. The humble He guides in justice, Psalm 25 says. The humble He teaches His way. He doesn't leave us when we're willing to decrease ourselves, when we're willing to constantly be lifting Him up. He doesn't leave us behind. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, he says, Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Eli didn't humble himself. Eli might have felt remorse about his kids. He might have felt uncomfortable about his kids. He might have obviously knew that his children were wayward and wrong, and that he perhaps played a part in that somehow. But he didn't humble himself and say, I have a position before God as the priest. I have a position before God as their father. I have a position before God as a man of God to step into this situation and deal with it. But man, it's just, it's just much easier if I just say, guys, what are you doing? What are you doing, guys? And then step back and let it be so. Just step back. Ultimately, what happened with Eli? I won't take you there for time's sake. But you recognize when we don't take care of the things that the Lord strengthens us and guides us in and grows us in and matures us in, when we don't act to the measure of our maturity, sometimes He treats us like a child. And you know where Eli heard, well, his, his ultimate judgment was from the voice of a little bitty kid. Samuel. Samuel was told. When Samuel sat there and in bed, and he heard the voice of God saying, Samuel, Samuel. And Eli knew that it was God. He said, ask him what he wants. You know, <laughs> Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And Samuel did. And ultimately, that little kid had to go into Eli and tell him, you're in trouble. Uh, I think that there's something there. I think Eli needed to be humbled. And Eli was humbled before the Lord well, because he wasn't willing to do it for himself. It's so much better, so much better to be, well, to be humbled willingly, to willingly humble ourselves as Peter goes on. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Put aside what we want. Oh, man, I want my, I want my freedom. And I, 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 you know, I'm a man. 
Put all that stuff aside and humble yourself before the Lord. And guess what he does? He'll exalt you. He'll lift you up in due time. This life is a vapor. We talked about that that last week. This life's just a vapor. Just a vapor in time and a vapor in strength. We're weak on our own. Thankfully, the Lord has a strong and a mighty right hand. And he wants to lift you up. And what he calls you to, (laughs) yeah, it's difficult. It's the affliction of the time. But we receive it with the joy of the Holy Spirit as the Thessalonians did. And he makes good in the end. And he strengthens us. You think John was a weak man? John the baptizer? The one who said, I want to lift him up and I'm going to decrease myself. Did he walk around on his hands and knees? He stood before that king and he said, King, you're wrong. You are living in sin and man. And it wasn't because he was an arrogant man. It's because he called out sin as the Lord led him to. And he lost his head as a result. What a hero John the baptizer was. I mean, he legit was martyred. <laughs> martyred. I make a martyr of myself from time, from time to time when my family offends me. I'll sit there and sulk. You know, oh, I just martyr myself. Oh, no, no, I won't do John the baptizer died because he took a stand for faith. He lifted up the Lord and he decreased himself. He must increase. I must decrease. I must humble myself before him. And he didn't suffer as a weakling. He didn't suffer as some kind of natural or spiritual pansy because he was willing to lift up the Lord and decrease himself. Saints, it's so easy. Easy to fall into that trap of churchianity, as my friend said. Like Eli, we can oftentimes know what needs to be done. We can know that ah, something needs to be done here. I need to say something here. Might try to show ourselves in the appearance of, of, of a priest, as it were, wearing our own ephod, so to speak. But then when the time comes that we need to decrease ourselves and, and put aside our own feelings and our own comforts, we don't want to do that, and we fold. It's difficult to maintain that presentation uh, when we don't necessarily, well, when we haven't made it our moment-by-moment pursuit to believe it and to live out that he must increase and I must decrease. It doesn't come naturally to, to us to make the tough decisions, to deal with the burdens that are heavy, to endure the things that aren't glorious. But how much better it is to simply be what the Lord wants us to be. Not have to think about it. Not have to consider how we might hide what we're actually thinking. Hide where we actually are. So much better when we simply believe and do what He has for us to do. As John did. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is my simple life's purpose, is what John said. And that's what I'm going to do in every single action. Every single purpose, every context, God must increase and I must decrease. It's an absolute imperative on my part. It's something that I don't even think about anymore, John says. It's like when you bump your knee and you kick out like that. It's a reflex for me. That God first, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one. I'm not the answer. It doesn't matter what I want to wear. Camel hair, fine. Locusts and all that. It's going to be my practice. That's who I am going to be. Not touch, not taste, not handle, not. It's just simply a matter of... I was talking with Nathan yesterday. Nathan Swank, and he said at one point he felt in his life that the Lord said, you need to strip down some things. And he was stripping him of some things. He must increase, but I must decrease. And John said, I'm stripping myself down. 
of these things, even the most simple natural comforts, because I want to focus 100% completely and entirely on the Lord Jesus. He must go up and I must come down. Saints, we have so much more reason to do so. It's only just, it's only right. Jesus died for us, God created us, redeemed us, protects us, strengthens us, all of those things. He, he, he is our creator, He is our almighty God. We are entirely, entirely, dare I say, demanded to increase Him simply because of how small we are and how huge He is. But as is always the case with God, we have so much more reason to increase Him than just simply because it's the right thing to do. Christ took it upon Himself to decrease so that I might increase, so that I might be in the bride of Christ, so that I might, well, I might recognize the excellence of His knowledge, understand everything about Him and receive everything that He offers me, counting all things rubbish as we considered this morning. Saints, I consider the sufferings of this present time is what Paul said in Romans 8.18. We'll close with that. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the afflictions, my comforts or giving up of my comfort, giving up of my convenience, giving up of, of my awkwardness before this thing that I need to deal with, giving up of my tiredness and my weariness. I consider all of those sufferings, all of those sacrifices of this present time unworthy, not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The increase that will be revealed in us because of the decrease that Jesus took upon himself. Saints, he must, he must increase. And I must decrease joyfully.